All right. I think that's all that we have. Last week, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 12. And that's where we're going to be this week as we continue on in our sermon series looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And last week we saw the outcome of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. A couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now, Pastor Matt preached on Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And how magnificent that was. After four days, Jesus comes and he speaks into the tomb and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And now the outcome of that was these two groups of people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were coming together to try and figure out a way to get rid of Jesus because they were afraid of losing their influence. And then we had the comparison between Mary and Judas. And Judas's response when he rejected Jesus was to hold on to money and power. But Mary comes and she pours out all that she had upon Jesus because Jesus is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest treasure. And as we continue to look into John 12, we're going to be starting at what is called the triumphal entry. So if you have your Bibles with you, starting in John chapter 12, verse 12, we'll be reading from 12 all the way to 33. And this is the word of the Lord. The next day, The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to, Jeru- to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went to and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that, they had, they had thund- that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to worship you. Lord, we think of all the other churches that are gathering in very much the same way we are. And we pray that you would use them to glorify yourself. I specifically think of, of, of Summerside Community Church, Lord. And I pray that you would give Pastor Devin and the elders there the wisdom that they need to shepherd the flock that you have entrusted with them. May you use them, Lord, for your glory. And may you bless them as they seek to be faithful in what you have called them to do and to be. And Lord, as we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, God, I... I want to preach so that you are glorified above all things. I want to speak of you. I want to praise you. I want to praise your name. And God, there's no way I can do this on my own. There's no way I can make this turn out well on my own. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Now we see the king is coming. The king is coming. As we see this new, uh, this new scene beginning to happen, there's a large crowd that has come and gathered for the feast, and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. As they took these branches, as they took these branches and they began to wave them, uh, palm branches were a symbol of victory. They would, lay, they would wave uh, palm branches as a victorious king would come into, the, into Jerusalem. But here's the thing. I think people here at this time thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow their political enemies because that is what they were most concerned about. But in the words that they say following this, as they took these branches and they were waving them, as we see in verse 13, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna, blessed is he. It's funny, because I grew up, how I was raised, Hosanna was always a term of praise. But when you actually look at what Hosanna actually means, It's not as much as a declaration of praise, but it's more of a plea for salvation. Which is also praise, but it is a plea. The Hebrew root, which is found in Psalm 118 verse 25, says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. See, the Hebrew word there is talking about deliver or to save. It's combined with another word which means to beg or beseech. And when we put them together, that's when we get this word Hosanna, which means I beg you to save me. So as these crowd came together and they were waving their branches, they were saying, Hosanna, save us. Now, the crowd thought originally that Jesus came for the purpose of saving them from their enemies, their political enemies, meaning Rome. But Jesus is coming to save from something that's even more horrendous than a Roman or a political system or a virus. 
So as Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the crowds were perfectly right to shout Hosanna. They were acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah, their King, as shown in their address of saying, Son of David. Theirs was a cry for salvation and a recognition that Jesus is the King who alone is able to save. Now they were fixated on the Romans, but Jesus came for the purpose, the purpose to save them from their sin, to break the bonds of their chains. And you have to think, how long... Up to this moment, how long did these people, the people of God, Israel, wait for the promised Redeemer? How long were they waiting to save those words, to say those words, Hosanna, to wait for the one who would save them? Let's do a quick little biblical theology, as they say. Right off the bat in Genesis 3, verse 15, Adam and Eve sinned. And because of their sin, sin begins to permeate all of humanity. It's like a poison. It's like a, like, a, like, a, like a cancer that just keeps growing. And Adam and Eve are told that a descendant would crush the serpent's head. They sin and God makes a promise that he will redeem. In Genesis 5, even in Noah's name, Noah's name that was given by his father. His father is looking for a rollback of a curse of painful work. Then we get to Genesis 17 where Abraham comes, and Abraham is promised by God that his line, there would be kings that come forth. Moses talks about a a scepter and a star that is kind of here but not quite here yet in Numbers 24. David was promised that his descendants would sit on the throne forever. But here's the problem with that one, is that Jerusalem was destroyed. But they still waited for God to keep that promise. And he does. God's people waited a millennial for this moment. A millennia. And all of this is happening to fulfill what God has said in Zechariah 9.9, as Jesus takes that colt, that donkey, and he sits on it, he, at that moment, is fulfilling yet another prophecy of who he is, fulfilling it once again in verse 15. But his disciples did not quite understand what was going on. Hindsight's 20-20, right? We read this and go, why didn't they understand what was going on? And I could probably talk to someone who's close to you, and they would say the same thing about you. And the disciples didn't understand until God turned the light on, until Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Oh, yeah. All of this was happening for a purpose, for a reason. See, the people didn't quite understand, but God was patient with them. And showed them. In verse 17, we see that the crowd had been with them when he called Lazarus. And, and those people that had saw Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead actually went out and told other people about that. They told other people about what Jesus had done, what they had witnessed Jesus doing, how he raised a man who was dead for four days, and, and now he was up. And you know what? Like, he was just reclining at table with Jesus and eating food. Like, he's alive you got to go check out this guy named Jesus. 
Notice in their testimony, all they're doing is pointing. Do you see that? Sometimes I think when we get, when we are talking to other people about who Jesus is and what he has done, we get caught up in making sure we have all the right words to say, which is important. But all we're doing is we're pointing to what Jesus has done in my own life. Look at what he has done for me. I was a rebel. I was a sinner. I was in darkness. I was alone. I was broken. I I needed to be healed. I needed to be made whole again. I I needed to be made right before a holy God. I was a sinner, and I couldn't do any of these things on my own. And look what Christ has done for me. Look what he has done for my friend over here who also knows Jesus. And that is what this crowd does. Hey, did you check out this guy named Jesus who suddenly made some guy who was dead for four days know that not dead? The outcome of that is the Pharisees begin to freak out again. So the Pharisees said in verse 19, they said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after them. A little bit of an exaggeration. But I also think it's funny at the same time because verse 20 says that the Greeks are coming. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all people. When you see and hear what Jesus has done in your own life, how can you not help yourself but praise him? Are you sitting there pouting like a child because you aren't getting something you want? Or are you so overwhelmed that God stepped down from his throne to save someone like you? I don't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. None of you deserved it. He steps down from his throne to save a people like you and I, if you are in Christ. If my eyes are fixated on Christ, my attitude should reflect that, reflect that. It will reflect all that he has done because my king has come to deliver me from my greatest enemy, the chains of sin. And when you see and hear what Jesus has done, how can you not help yourself but praise him? He is the king and he has come. But as the king, a king doesn't just come and sit on his throne and just, you know, chill. He comes with a purpose. And his purpose is to act like a king. And as king, the king judges, as we see in verses 20 to 23. In verses 20, we see that some Jews seek Jesus. So they go to Philip, who is from Bethsaida. And probably one of the reasons why they come to Jesus or or come to uh, Philip at this moment in in verse 20 is simply because Philip is a Greek name. He's from a a town that's predominantly Greek. So they figure, hey, who else to kind of bridge that gap between us and Jesus is another guy who might be a Greek. He wasn't, he was Jewish. So Philip comes and he tells Andrew, And together, Andrew and Philip, they go tell Jesus. And the Pharisees, what they were referencing back in verse 19, the verse before, their greatest fear is actually happening right now. And now, apparently, non-Jewish Greeks are coming to Jesus in verse 20. 
In verse 19, the Pharisees were worried about the world following Jesus, an exaggeration for them, obviously, but John takes this time to tell us that, they, uh, that, that what they were exaggerating about was actually becoming reality. Jesus is coming to save all those who are his, not just one group of people. We sit here and we praise our God. We sing these songs. We open the word together because of this reality. As he continues on, so Philip interacts with Jesus, and Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Don't be quick on over reading that not sorry not reading and dwelling upon this well for so long jesus has been saying my hour has not come my hour has not come it's not time yet and you, you think about all those instances where he got free from being arrested or was able to get away from other people or even in his conversations with others don't tell anybody about what i've done because my hour has not come now his hour has come now it's here. And I love this in John because now John slows down. You only have about a week in reality, but the rest of the book of John is now just fixating on this time that the hour of Christ, what his purpose was for, it has now come. It is here. It is time for him to do what his purpose was, and a purpose that he wasn't all that too excited about either. as he was troubled. So he comes and he says these words in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has to die. And he's telling his disciples, I have to die. For anything to happen, for my purpose to be fulfilled, I have to die. And then he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it, for, keep it for eternal life. I was dwelling upon this this week. We live in this world where it constantly tells us how we have to love ourselves. Constantly. There's actually a show that my wife and I, Steph and I, watch, and they have this whole episode called, and they just go, treat yourself. And they just go treat themselves. That's the whole day. Treat themselves. Love yourself. It's all about you. Didn't you know that? How many times do we tell our kids, oh, it's okay, you're special. More special than the kid that's sitting next to you? I, I don't know. Although I think all my kids are special, but, you know. But there's absolute terms here that Jesus is using to emphasize a point. He says, loves his life. Well, what does that mean? Pastor, aren't we all supposed to love our life? Well, yeah. Don't treat yourself like garbage. But what Jesus is talking about here is delighting in your life in this world more than in God. So what are you delighting in the most? What is the thing to delight that you are delighting in the most? Because here Jesus comes and he says, if you hate your life, you'll lose, or sorry, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. 
If you hate your life, you're going to gain it. You're not only going to gain it, but you're going to have eternal life. And then he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must. Not, hey, kind of, when I want, whenever, you know, when things are going well. He says, must follow me. This isn't up for discussion. The king has come and he has said these things and he's laid it out. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the, on, the Father will honor him. What are you delighting in? When someone looks at your life, what are you delighting in the most? Because Jesus comes and he also says that he must hate his life in this world. And what does this mean? We live in a world that is constantly telling us to love ourselves. And I really don't think they can compute. The world cannot compute what Jesus is saying here. And it's infiltrated the church in so many ways. Oh, they just don't love me the way that I want. Or uh, I'm not getting this out of the service. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And who said anything about it being about you? It has nothing to do with you. Because in order to follow Jesus, you must hate your life in this world. Which means you think so little of your life and so much of God that he is, that you are willing to sacrifice it all for God. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm actually going to tell you it's going to be hard. And outside of Jesus Christ, it's impossible. Because Jesus is the greatest treasure. And if I don't have the greatest treasure in my life, why would I give up what I already treasure? I was sitting down uh, this week, the deacons and I, as I was saying in our meetings, he doesn't know I'm going to talk about this. Maybe he's not listening. And we were sitting there interviewing one of the uh, recommendations for deacons. And... Uh, we're just talking and I ask him what is the gospel and he could see the tears welling up in his eyes as he's reflecting upon the hope that he has in Jesus Christ that as he's on this planet he has a job and his job is to proclaim Jesus Christ but he's looking forward so much that he's willing to give up everything everything he has in this life is nothing in comparison to the gift of Jesus Christ heaven's not the goal Jesus is when I die and when I get to heaven it's not like oh sweet I'm in heaven it's going to be ah oh, nice I'm finally with my lord and savior I'm finally, sin is not in my life anymore. I'm not constantly choosing other things over you. I can finally delight in you forever and ever and be blown away for eternity of what God has done for me. That is what it means to hate your life. That I think so little of my life that I'm willing to give it up everything because of what God has done for me. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Do you understand that he has died for you? That he stepped down from his throne? That he became, he added to himself humanity so that he could die the most horrific sin to pay the price for something that you could not afford to pay? If you understand that, you are willing to give up everything for it. And Jesus actually talks about that in Matthew. About the man who sold everything he had to go by the field where he found a treasure. 
Some of you are going to sit there and be like, oh, I got that, pastor. And then some of you are going to be sitting there thinking, I don't know if I've got it. I really hope you're the second type. Because if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I got this under control, I don't think you do. I don't think you're struggling with it the way you should. Because what it means to hate my life means that I don't value my kids as much as my God. That's what that means. It means I don't value my church as much as my God or my wife. It means I'm willing to give it all for God. That is when it makes it hard. I think about missionary friends who go to Timbuktu somewhere. I had friends who were in Ukraine when the Civil War broke out as they struggled with, do I bring my friends out of here? We have acquaintances who are in Sudan who are being missionaries in Sudan. Sudan! That place has never been good. Well, it might have been at some point, but not recently. With family. And we say, praise God. How about your job? How about your relationship with your teachers or your professors? How about family? You know, when, I, when you sit down here and you really break down this, what Jesus says, in order to follow Jesus, you must hate your life. In order to gain eternal life, you must hate your life. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, praise God. Yeah, that's, got that, Jesus. Good to go. But when the rubber hits the road, that really tells you what you delight in the most. So what are you delighting in the most? Because if you don't delight in Christ the most, you cannot have the promise that he says at the end of verse 25 for eternal life. If you're delighting in anything else more than Jesus, I'm not saying you can't delight in other things. I like my bed. I delight in going into my bed every day. I say this often. This is the best part of two days, going into those sheets. And everyone's like, no, that's, you're like, you can't call me a liar on that. It really is. I delight in those things. But can I give it up for the sake of knowing God as my Lord and Savior? Because he is the greatest treasure. Jesus isn't telling you to treat yourself like garbage, but to look at yourself through the lens of who you are in Christ. If I understand who I am in Christ, I can give up anything for him. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, that it won't be heartbreaking, but what Jesus is saying is that he satisfies and will satisfy and is asking you and me, what do you treasure the most? The giver of gifts or the gift Look, following Jesus means self-sacrifice. Look at the cross and you can see what it means to follow Jesus. So which one are you? The one who loves more life more than God or the one who is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus because he is your treasure? At the end of the day, if you love something more than Jesus, you will end up following after that thing. 
If you love money, well, you're going to work more hours. Got to get a bigger paycheck. Got to do what you got to do to get that boat or that bigger TV or that bigger house or a car or I don't know, whatever. If you want to see how serious Jesus is taking this, look at the cross where he died for the sins of those who are his. In verse 26, it says, if anyone serves me. So why would, so who would you rather serve? Those who are absorbed by self-protection and the interests of life on earth that will hit them like a wrecking ball of destruction at the end of times? Or are you going to, or for those who have been set free by Christ's grace, who are willing to lay down their lives and who will receive eternal life. I love 25, 27, where Jesus says that he's troubled. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? See, Jesus is 100% man, and he's 100% God. We call this a hypostatic union. He's both. And someone's like, mathematicians are going, that's impossible. And I tell you, my God is the God of the impossible. And look. Here he is in his humanity. He's troubled. I would actually probably question if he wasn't. Because in my humanity, if I'm facing something that is hard, I'm troubled. And here Jesus, he's troubled. Jesus is greatly troubled by the idea of bearing the wrath of his Holy Father in the place of sinners, echoing the distress of the psalmist that we see in Psalm 6. Even with that trouble, he still accepts his role and reasserts his commitment to, to, to the Father's will and to glorify him. And he will do this yet again in Gethsemane. It's for the benefits of his disciples, though, that God comes and he booms his voice. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Kind of a similar situation that happened to uh, Saul who became Paul. My kids have this song called, uh, what do they say? Saul was a bad guy, Paul was a good guy, or something like that. And how Jesus himself intervened into Paul's life. But here God says to this crowd, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And there's a little bit of confusion as to what's going on. But it's for the benefits of the disciples and those around him that the Father places his seal of approval upon Jesus' saving work. And part of that work is to judge. Because now is the judgment of this world as he continues on in verse 31. When Jesus dies, Jesus will end the power of sin over humanity. He will judge it and he will condemn it. And he will condemn the ruler of this world who is Satan. Sometimes we're scared to say this name. I don't know why. Satan is a slave to God. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow. Satan is his usurper and has power and face, but not by right. He is the head of sinners and the world's sinful structure, but God is sovereign even over him. And Satan exercises authority over God's enemies only to the extent that God allows him. And God, Jesus himself, will cast out all of these things. The death of Jesus takes away Satan's ability to accuse those who are Jesus's. 
When I die, I stand before the throne of God, not as one who is condemned, but one who has been saved by his amazing grace. I can boldly approach the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for me. Not on anything else. God's heavenly court and curtains, uh, sorry, God's heavenly court and curtails Satan's power to deceive and to dominate humanity. At the cross, Satan will be cast out. He will be decisively defeated when Jesus dies on the cross and rise again. When someone says to me that Satan did this to me, I go, really? I think you need to rethink things a little bit. Colossians 2, 14 to 15 says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says, Since therefore the, ch- the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. The devil, and, and sorry, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have a victorious captain. He triumphed over death. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, when he rose from the dead uh, in the resurrection, this is the basis for his final triumph and consummation. This is what we see in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, oh Christian, if Jesus is your captain, he is victorious. If you now live in hope of the final consummation, why is it that you continue to not fight against the sin that is in your life? If your captain is victorious, why do you not fight against it? We don't have a captain who continues to lie in some tomb somewhere. The grave is empty. He broke off the heavy chains of sin. He he left them in the empty grave. My daughter right now uh, is doing a poetry unit, and they just watched the movie, The Dead Poet Society, which reminded me about a whole bunch of things. In 1865, Walt Whitman wrote this poem to commemorate the death of Abraham Lincoln, which is quoted in the movie. It was popularized in that movie, Dead Poet Society, and it goes, Oh, captain, my captain! Our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes, the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. The poem just show a little bit of a mood of a nation who just lost their one of their leaders, but that's not our mood. Our king is not dead. Our king is alive. Our king is victorious. He is victorious over death. The grave is empty. He has crushed the head of the snake. So, O Christian, you are part of a war that is not of this world. It is a spiritual war that comes in various forms because everywhere Satan aims to destroy God, his Christ, and his people. 
but our victory is ultimately assured because of Christ, our mighty victor who defeated all our foes in his death and his resurrection. With Jesus' death, Jesus will end the power of sin over humanity. He will judge it. He will condemn it. So my question to you today is this. When Jesus died, and he died for our sins, and he rose again, and now he's standing, and he ascended to heaven, and is now standing at the right hand of God Almighty, his, our Father. When we come to Jesus, our righteousness is imputed upon us. His righteousness is imputed upon us. It is given to us. If I am not coming to the throne with the righteousness of Christ, I stand there before him naked with all I've got. I think for some of you, you're counting on God's mercy towards you as a license to keep on sinning. His mercy isn't meant to lead you to, his mercy is meant to lead you, lead you to repentance, not further into rebellion. He comes and he will deal with sin because he is king. So the question for you and for me is, what are you resting in? When you repent and believe, you receive eternal life. It is an incorruptible inheritance, and the love of God through Christ are the true treasure. It's a treasure that puts an end to all of our searching. Jesus fulfills our greatest needs. He satisfies our longings. He makes us whole and clean before God. He calms and quiets our hearts. He gives us hope for the future. The price was paid by Christ for our redemption. He emptied himself of his glory, came to earth in the form of a lowly man, and he shed his precious blood on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for all those who are in Christ. To rest in that is to receive the gift that God has given us. It means that you also have a changed life. It means that you will desire Christ more and more every day. I'm not saying you'll get it perfect, because I sure don't. Talk to our senior saints, and they'll be quick to tell you, <laughs> definitely not getting it right. Our king is the kind of king who entered Jerusalem in triumph. He is the kind who makes himself poor so that his people can be rich. He puts himself between his people and the danger they face. He defends his people at the cost of his own life and concerns himself always with the needs of his people. So who are you going to serve? Will you hate your life or are you going to love it? He will be lifted up, and he will draw all people to himself. All people. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Revelation 7, verse 9, which says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And what does it say? From every nation, from all tribes and people, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what are they singing? Worthy is the Lord. It's for all people. And we're not talking about all people as in literally every single human, but all people in terms of all tribes, all languages, all ethnicities, all of it. So I love it when our church begins to reflect that more and more. So what? Live your life 
for the exhilaration of living for the honor that the Father will give to those who serve Jesus. That's what we do with this. We sing it, a king who comes to judge. He is a triumphant king. And what, what kind of king entered Jerusalem in triumph? Not the kind of king who would take from his people to enrich himself or use his people to protect himself or deploy his people to defend himself or neglect his people to entertain himself. No, this is the kind of king who entered Jerusalem in triumph so that the, that the kind who makes himself poor so that his people can be rich puts himself between his people and the dangers they face. He defends his people at the cost of his own life and he and concerns himself always with the needs of his people. So what are you living for? Are you living for this world? Are you living for Christ? Whatever else you may be living for, I want you to think about how exhilarating it is to live for the honor that the Father will give to those who serve Jesus. Someone is going to say that this sounds like a pretty selfish reason to come to Jesus. But think about, thinking about our self-interest in this way is different from being selfish. What does it mean to be selfish? It is to live for this life only. It is to delight in your life in this world more than in God. To consider our true self-interest is to recognize that the Father will honor those who lay down their lives for others, for Christ. To see that such a life is the best and the most honorable kind of life we could possibly live. And to lay down our life in this world in order to guard it for life in the next. This is the type of person that thinks so little of his or herself, her life, and so much of God that he is willing to sacrifice it all for him because he is the greatest gift. Live your life for the exhilaration of living for the honor that the Father will give to those who serve Jesus. May we live for the Father to honor us. I look forward to the day when I can stand before the throne of God and I pray that I've lived my life for the glory of God, but either way, you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'll take what little I have and I'll pour it into the kingdom because that's what matters the most. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this reminder in your word of what you have called us to do and to be. I pray that we would be a people that hate our lives. I pray that we would hate our lives, that we would delight in you more than anything, and that would show as we interact with one another. Even this Christmas season will that show. May we not value the gift over the giver of the gifts. May you continue to be glorified and honored as we sing these songs, Lord, as we reflect upon what you have done for us. Amen.